All right, we are in Proverbs 24, and we did the first half of this chapter last week, and so we will um, pick up in verse 17. Proverbs 24, we'll read verses 17 to 34, and then we'll have our Bible study there. There it says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord will see it and be displeased, and turn his anger away from him. Do not fret because of evildoers, or be envious of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change. For their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. These also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. He who says to the wicked, You are righteous. Peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked, there will be delight, and good blessing will come upon them. He kisses the lips who gives a right answer. Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. Don't be a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. I passed by the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your want like an armed man. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, again, recognizing, Lord, that we are completely bereft and lacking of any wisdom, of any knowledge, of any understanding of your will. Lord, unless you make us wise, Lord, unless you teach us, Lord, we would remain in a state of foolishness as simpletons throughout our life. So, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you to instruct us. Lord, we thank you that you've granted to us your word as a deposit of your wisdom. Lord, we thank you as well that you have given to us your Holy Spirit, who has regenerated us, Lord, who has renewed our minds, and who is our constant teacher and guide, leading us into all truth and righteousness. And we ask today that he would guide us, Lord, that he would guide our thoughts and our mind into your will, Lord, that we might accurately perceive and understand, Lord, the great truths laid out for us here in this passage, and that, Lord, our hearing of these things would not be as one who merely looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like, but rather we pray that we would be as one who looks intently into the law of liberty, Lord, that we would be one who hears the word and who goes and who does what it says. So, Lord, be with us today, bless us, teach us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Here, there is this desire, this sense that comes from our flesh, from evil desires within us, from this law of sin, this principle of sin that remains within us even as believers, according to Romans chapter 7. And that is the desire to gloat, to rejoice, to have great joy when our enemy stumbles and falls. When calamity comes upon one that we perceive to be our enemy, our natural inclination, our sinful inclination, is to rejoice at his fall and for our heart to be glad when he stumbles in this way, And here, the Bible is forbidding us from behaving and having this kind of an attitude and this kind of rejoicing in the downfall of our enemy, right, of one who is a personal enemy. Now, we have to understand this in context and in relationship to Proverbs 11, verse 10. Proverbs 11, verse 10, and this would be the difference between, um, like in Romans chapter 13, or Romans chapter 12, when it talks about vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, uh, that we're not to avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
In terms of personal vengeance, there is no place in the Christian life for us to seek vengeance on our own, for offenses committed against us. There is a place for us as Christians to apply ourselves and to appeal to the proper authorities established by God and for God to grant vengeance to us, even on this earth, to correct injustices based upon proper authorities. So it's wrong for us to seek personal vengeance, but it's good and proper for us to seek it in the proper way. And if God grants it, then so be it. But if God does not grant it to us in this life, then we are to resign ourselves to the will of God and be content that in due time God will rectify these wrongs. Proverbs 11.10 says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. Here, there's joyful shouting at the perishing of the wicked. The, yet here in Proverbs 24.17, it says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. So can we rejoice or are we forbidden from rejoicing? Well, Proverbs 11.10 is dealing with it in terms of the city. In terms of rulers and those who are public figures, Whenever there is a public figure, one who is a ruler, who has a position of authority in this world, and he is promoting laws and policies that are contrary to justice and righteousness, contrary to the public good of the society, and whenever that wicked ruler comes to his fall and his demise, there is a proper place for the city and for the people under his domain to rejoice, to celebrate that he has been removed because he is the source of their oppression. He is the one that is promoting injustice. And so there is this rejoicing when it is a public fall, when it is a public figure who has one of these positions of honor and of rank, who is using their position to promote justice, to bring about sin in the land, and to oppress the people of God, then it is okay for the people of God to rejoice when God grants to them deliverance from such enemies. Such was the case with the Jewish people whenever God delivered them from wicked Haman. Haman was trying to annihilate all of the Jews. He wanted to kill them all. And yet God brought him to his end. And they rejoiced at God's deliverance from this enemy. And so in that way, it is good, it is right, it is fitting for God's people to rejoice at such times. However, when it comes to personal vengeance, when it comes to personal enemies, to those who slight us, who wrong us for grievances that we have one to another, and there may be some enemy that I have, someone who has wronged me, well, I should not rejoice at his stumbling and when he comes to a fall and when he comes to a ruin. This is coming from evil desires within me. Instead, when we see someone in this state of sin, we should pity them. We should desire their salvation. We should desire their repentance. We should desire that they be reconciled to God. And even if they come to ruin, we should not rejoice in this kind of a gloating way at the fall of our enemy. That this is a wicked thing and it's not coming from the Spirit of God within us, but it's coming from our own desires for self-righteousness and self-vindication that is arising from our own flesh. It's not trusting in the will of God. And this is why... Here it is forbidden for us to do such things. So when it comes to uh, personal vengeance or personal in enemies, those who have uh, committed sins against us, that there is no recourse for us to seek justice in this present world, then that enemy is there and we should not rejoice when calamity comes upon them, when they have a great downfall in that way. But instead... What is the rule that should govern the way that we treat our enemies? We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We are to love them and as far as we can, live at peace with them. And as far as we can, do good to them. Do good to them and pray for them and promote their well-being and their welfare and have pity on them and pray that God would have pity on them as well. Proverbs 25 and verse 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. There, do good to your enemy. Give him food, give him water, but do not rejoice at his downfall. Now, why, verse 18, if you do this, the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. If you rejoice in the downfall of your enemy, then God will see that and he'll be displeased with you. 
He's not going to be pleased in your behavior and what you're doing. And God may turn events so that your enemy, who did come down because of his sin, now God is going to relieve him of that and give him back a position of prosperity. And then your last case will be worse than the first. So God has the ability to lift him up and to turn his anger away from him. And he may do that in order to teach you to be humble and to not rejoice at the downfall of your enemy. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 5. He who mocks the poor taught his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. We should not rejoice at the calamity of another person, even if they've committed great sins against us. And typically, this is the way that we are. When someone sins against God, then it doesn't bother us so much. But when someone offends us, commits some personal sin against us, then we are highly offended at such things, and we desire and we seek the calamity and the downfall of such people. And we should not behave in this way. 24, 19, and 20. Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil man, and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Here, neither are we to rejoice in their calamity, nor are we to be envious of their prosperity. Here, these are two uh, sins that can accompany the presence of a wicked person, right? If they fall into ruin and calamity, there is the propensity in us to rejoice at their calamity. If they have prosperity and riches, then there is a propensity in us to be envious of them and to desire to be with them. He says, don't fret over evildoers. This is a problem that we often face, especially if you watch the news. If you watch the news or read websites and you see everything that's going on in the world today, it's always doom and gloom. And there is a lot of doom and gloom out there. After all, I mean, look at our president. <laughs> Who wouldn't be doomy and gloomy with everything going on in our own country? Well, the tendency for men is to be anxious, to fret, to think the world is coming to an end. And maybe the world is coming to an end. But is it outside of the control of God? Of course not. None of these things that are happening in the world today ever happen outside of the control of God. God is so sovereign over all of these things. So even if a wicked man rises and becomes the president of the land, or even if a group of wicked people have great influence over everything that's happening in society, and it looks as if they are unchecked and they're going to do their, their way and have all the things that they want. Well, certainly we don't rejoice at those things. Just because it happens doesn't mean that we're glad about that. However, at the same time, we cannot fret and be anxious and be consumed with these things. Because how can we, by being anxious about these things, by fretting over an evildoer, does that do anything to change it? It doesn't resolve the problem at all. Instead of fretting over evildoers, what should we do? We should pray to God about it. We should resign ourselves to God, pray to God, and ask God to deliver us, and then be content with whatever God gives. If he answers the prayer, then we should rejoice. If he doesn't answer the prayer, then we have to see it as a test, as a trial from God, and receive that from the hand of God. But don't be anxious and do not fret over such things. Why? Because there will not be a future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. As wicked as people are today, and as evil as some of the rulers and leaders of our land are, are they the first wicked people to ever rule the world? No. And will they be the last? Absolutely not. So long as this world continues as it is, there will always be wicked men. There will always be oppressive rulers. This is human history, right? You go from one to the other to the other to the other. And yes, even if, as we've seen in the book of Nahum and Jonah, even if Nineveh falls, who quickly rises up in their place? Babylon. And in many ways, Babylon is worse than Nineveh. And then Babylon falls, but then you get the Medes and the Persians. And then they fall and you get the Greeks. And then they fall and you get the Romans. This is the way it is. There will never be a lack of wicked men to rule the world. They will always be there, generation after generation. And yet, all of those who have gone before us, what has happened to every single one of them? What happened to Julius Caesar? What happened to Alexander the Great? What happened to Darius? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the great king over the, all the earth? What, ha what happened to Sennacherib? What happened to the Pharaoh in Exodus? Every single one of them died. They are mortal men, and they will die, and there is no future for them. In the life to come, 
they will not oppress anyone, but they themselves will be oppressed by God. They will be the ones who are being tormented by God. So they may be a cause and a source of affliction, of hardship and turmoil in this life. And if that's the case, we should pray that God would deliver us. If he does not, then we must bear up under the discipline of God. But ultimately, we are assured that there is no future for such men, and we will be delivered from them. Who is there a future for? For the man of peace. For the man who is at peace with God and peace with his fellow men. So don't be envious of them. Don't fret over them. No, there is no future for them. And in due time, God will deliver us. And if we're looking at our life, both our present life and then our eternal life, of the two, which is the greater? Which has more endurance? Our temporal life, which is like a mist or a shadow, where there is the presence of of wicked rulers who are oppressors, or the eternal life that awaits us in the life to come where there is no oppressors and there is no one to harm us. Well, that life to come is far superior. And this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 considers the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glories that will be revealed to us. What we endure now in our present tormentors, right now it seems insurmountable. It seems as if these people, they'll never come to an end. But one day, from eternity's perspective, these men will be like little ants to us. They're nothing compared to God, and we will be there with the Lord in his comfort, in his joy, without anyone to harm us or to afflict us for all eternity. So can we endure these kinds of people, these evildoers? Absolutely. Absolutely, we can endure it, and we must endure it and press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. Here, he says, do not fear, or he says, my son, fear the Lord and fear the king. The Lord and the king, in that order. Here, he's talking about the ultimate heavenly authority, the supreme authority, and then he's talking about subordinate authorities that have been instituted by God. This is why in Romans 13, we're to be subject to the ruling authorities, because there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been appointed by God. God is the one who ordained and who instituted human government, political authorities, such as kings. They have their authority from God, and there is no authority except from God. So is fearing God and fearing the king, are these always mutually exclusive? No. Most of the time, they're in perfect harmony together. Because rulers, according to Romans 13, typically are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. They are typically there to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. And insofar as they are promoting what is good and right in the land, even if they do not have a true principle of righteousness in them and they're not pursuing the glory of God, yet because they want to have a prosperous kingdom and they know that a kingdom with no laws, with anarchy and chaos, is not going to be a land of prosperity. Who wants to go and live in a land, a city, where there are people living on the streets, using the restroom on the sidewalks, right? Needles and drugs everywhere. Well, this paradise exists right now in America. It's called California. Casey goes out to San Francisco all the time. This is his own testimony. We have an eyewitness who has told us. Typically, that is not what people want in a prosperous land, right? And therefore, the rulers promote policies that are contrary to those kinds of things, unless they are completely insane, such as they are in California. So fearing the Lord and fearing the king, these two things are not always at odds with one another. Now, sometimes they are at odds. And when they are at odds, who has to have our ultimate authority, our ultimate supremacy, and our ultimate allegiance and loyalty? It goes to God. Right? We have to determine, is it better to obey God or is it better to obey man? And if the edict of the king is in contradiction to the edict of God, then we must obey God rather than man. But insofar as what the king requires and what God requires are in harmony, then we should both fear the Lord and we should fear the king. We should do those and perform our proper responsibility in both places. And that would be true of any subordinate or secondary authority that God has placed in this world. Parents over their children, 
If the parents are expecting what is good and right, then the children should fear God and they should fear and obey their parents. In the workplace, if what the boss is requiring or the employees is good and right, then there should be proper fear and respect for the Lord and proper fear and respect for those who are their superiors in the workplace. In the Christian church, if whatever is expected is good and right, then we fear the Lord and we fear the authorities that God has placed there, and there is no contradiction between the two things. And this is the way commonly it is. We are, according to 1 Peter 2.13, we are called there to honor the emperor as supreme. He is the supreme human authority on this earth, and we are to honor him and give to him our loyalty and our faithfulness and our fidelity so long as he is ruling in that kingdom and he's not expecting us to do things contrary to the will of God. Verse 21. Oh, verse 21, he says, Do not associate with those who are given to change. There is also within human history this element. <clears throat> in nearly every society, there are people who always want there to be upheaval, political change. They're never content or satisfied with what God has ordained and with what they have. They're always given to rebellion, to sedition, to change, to wanting to overthrow the system of government, as if the problem is the system of government. And if we could put in a better system of government, then everything is going to be peace and harmony on earth. Where is the ultimate problem when it comes to human society? Is it the system of government? Now, there are some systems of government that really stink, okay? Like communism. That is itself evil and wicked. But ultimately, the problem is with the sinful human heart. That is where the ultimate problem lies. And in various types of governments, right, if it is legitimate and if it is something uh, that can be submitted to, then we should not be desiring this change and upheaval all the time. There are those, again, who are given to sedition, to rebellion, to constantly wanting to overthrow and change the government. And you never know what you're going to get. It may be that, yes, this government is weak uh, as it could be, but it might be replaced with something that is far worse, such as what happened in Russia. You know, they had their czars, and those guys were typically uh, pretty immoral and pretty unjust, and they didn't promote the well-being of society. But I would much rather live under the Russian czars than I would live under Stalin and under Lenin when the communists came in and took power in Russia. Because what did they do when they took power? Well, they killed over 100 million of their own people. Now, who could have foreseen that? But all these young uh, radicals who were pushing and promoting the bringing in of communism, did they foresee and understand that some of their own family members would be hauled off and put to death? Some of their own family members would be taken out uh, into Siberia to work at these factories in these places and die miserable deaths there. You never know what you're going to get. Yes, this one may be bad, but you may get someone worse in return if it's not done in the proper way. And typically, when there are these kinds of radicals and these seditious and rebellious people, they're not forward-thinking. They're just constantly mad at the world and they're wanting to change everything, but they're not thinking in terms of something that is going to be better in its place. Now, I do think in terms of American history, our founding fathers you know, they desired change as well, but they were very thoughtful men who were well-studied and who understood the issues and sought to ins install and to put in place something that was better than what they were coming out of. But oftentimes, this is not the case. Now, of course, he doesn't mean this across the board, that there is never a place for change. If the governing authority, if the, the politics of the day become so oppressive and it's such a tyranny against the people, then there comes a point where there must be a pressing against these things in a proper place under the legitimate authorities to resist and to oppose such things. Also, this should be wary of in the church as well. There is also in church life, and if you study church history, a desire for people to embrace new theologies, new ideas, new concepts. That in the church, people are often like the Athenians were in Acts chapter 20. They always wanted to hear something new and something novel. Men grow weary of the timeless truths, the eternal truths of the gospel, of Jesus Christ and him crucified. They don't want to rely upon 
the sound doctrine that has been established and handed down to us throughout the generations. But they want new, a new twist, they want a new idea, new concepts, and there's always readily available some new uh, PhD, someone who's writing a book, trying to get published, trying to make a name for himself, and you don't make a name for yourself by regurgitating what has already been written by the reformers or the Puritans or some sound theologian from the past. Typically, you gain it by having a new perspective, such as a new perspective on Paul. And then people grunt, and they grab and hold of these things, and they embrace it in the church, and then what happens to the church? It falls into ruin and to misery. The new perspective on Paul was written by a stinky theologian, right? But it has yielded horrible fruit and results within the church, within the church, and many people have embraced it. Anything that is new and novel is typically not going to be good for us. So be against and be aware of those who are constantly wanting to bring about change. We need things that are timeless, things that are eternal, something that is tested, something that is proven and has proven itself over the course of time. And this is why we as a church like to root ourselves theologically and doctrinally into the Reformation and into uh, the theologies that were coming out of that because we see there something that is coming out of the Bible and something that is rooted and it is tested and has proven itself over the course of time. So there, again, he is warning him about this type of desire for new things and to overturn the old ways. Verse 22 says, their calamity will rise suddenly and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. Who knows the ruin that will come from both of them? From those who do not fear the Lord or the King and those who desire change all the time. They don't know what they're going to bring in. And again, you see this throughout history. Just study the history of communism. And those people who were fighting and who wanted to bring those things in, they did not understand what they were doing. And they don't understand the ruin and the misery that they brought upon their own people and upon their own families by ushering in this very demonic and evil ideology. But it brought the ruin and misery to China, to Russia, to any, any other country. Venezuela, go look at that place. It's a, it's a horrible place. Uh, that They're living in horrible poverty now. And it used to be one of the most prosperous nations in the entire earth. And yet they brought in these ideas of change and it brought ruin to all of them. It does, communism brings equality, right? Equality of poverty, equality of misery to everyone. This is what it results in. Okay, verse 23. These also are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous. Peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight and a good blessing will come upon them. He kisses the lips who gives a right answer. Here, do not show partiality in judgment. We should not be partial to the rich or to the poor. It shouldn't be that way. To the young, to the old. We ought to judge with righteous judgment, with just judgment, and determine a person and judge a person based upon their merit, their character, their worth, what it is that they are saying. But whenever we are partial in judgment, then justice is perverted. And we're not uh, promoting that which is good and sound. And this is a danger within the churches. James chapter 2, even in the early church, there already was this desire because this is human nature. There's nothing new under the sun. And these are the kinds of sins that are common throughout human history. It was true in the Old Testament There were laws in the law of Moses about showing partiality in judgment. And then it's true in the New Testament, and it remains true in our own day as well. James 2.1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? 
but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There, don't judge, don't hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. And here, it's favoring the rich over the poor. It can be the, the converse as well, favoring the poor over the rich. We have to judge with righteous judgment and determine a man based upon who he is in Christ. If the poor man is a true believer in Christ, he's an heir of the kingdom of God. So why should I treat him any different than a rich man in the, in the public assembly? He should not be relegated to the outskirts of the church or uh, only can rise to a certain position because he doesn't have money. If a poor man is a godly and a righteous man, but he's a, a simple man and he has a, a simple job and he doesn't have a lot of wealth, but he shows him and proves himself to be a man of faith, to be a man of godliness, he is competent and able to teach, then there's nothing that should prohibit that man from rising to the rank and position of an elder. And if there is a rich man in the church, but he is not strong in faith and he has not uh, proven himself to be godly and he does not have the ability to teach, then he should not be raised to the position of an elder just because he has money or given any other position in the church because usually you get into big trouble from that. I have a little bit of history in church life and many times people receive honor and position in churches based upon what? Based upon money and their success in the present world. And that will lead to ruin and disaster because you're showing personal favoritism. You're not judging with righteous judgment. Right? What does that have to do with one's godliness? How much money he makes? Now, again, if someone is godly and God blesses them and they have good success in business, then that's good and fine. We should not exclude them because of that, but we should not prefer them because of that either. But we ought to judge with righteous judgment. So this happens uh, in the churches, and it should not happen. Also, verse 24, he who says to the wicked, you are righteous. Peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. We should not declare of wicked men that they are righteous, that they are reconciled to God, that they have a good, favorable standing with God. This is also a problem in the churches. This weak, tepid, uh, watered-down gospel that is so often preached, where all a person has to do is run up to the front and say a prayer, and then they pronounce that they're a child of God when there's no evidence of this, and they have no understanding of the gospel. Well, if you do that, you may be saying to a wicked man, you are righteous, that you are a child of God, when indeed he is not. And then they put them on their church roll. And how long will they stay on that church roll? Till the day that they die. That's right. That roll will be there forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this church roll, right? This is what they think. This is commonly the belief in the churches. And there you've got plastered that this man is a member in good standing when he hasn't been to church in 20 years. And then whenever he dies, the minister will get up and say all these wonderful things about him and how he's a Christian and he's in heaven now. That's happening. And it happens very frequently, right? I've never been to a funeral where the person went to hell. Everyone goes to heaven. And I've known some of these people and I would have my doubts, right? I would have my doubts, at least leave it ambiguous. Well, whenever we say of the wicked, you are righteous. And when we declare that to others, then peoples will curse us and nations will abhor us because we're subverting true justice and we're subverting a true understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to those who rebuke the wicked, it will be a delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Here, if a person is doing evil, then we need to rebuke them and say, do you not know that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? And tell them about the way of salvation and how their sins can be forgiven in Christ. That's what we need to do, not pronounce the blessing of God upon them. He kisses the lips who gives a right answer. Their people will honor and respect the man who speaks truthfully and honestly concerning others. And if everyone knows that this man is a reprobate and you are saying that he's righteous, then people know that you have no honesty or integrity. But if you're willing to say what is truthful about this person, then people will know that this man is an honorable man. He speaks what is right. He speaks what is true. And they will give you the proper respect and honor that is due. Verse 27. Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. Here, it is necessary 
for the person to establish and make secure the means of their sustenance, the means of their, of their earning their wages, of their gaining their income, how they're going to provide for their family, right? That needs to be established first. And then after you have a means of income, then you need to build up your house, right? This is the way it should be. If you go and seek to build up your house, but you do not, you've not established your work, then how are you going to build up your house? You're going to begin to build the tower, and then you're not going to be able to complete it, and then everyone's going to come by and say, look at this guy. He started building a tower, and then he couldn't complete it. You don't start building your house unless you are sure that you have the money and the funds that are needed in order to finish the house. This is what he means here. And yet, what do people often want to do, especially in a debtor society in which we find ourselves living? People want to get and to acquire the goods that they want without the ability to pay for those things, without having the means and the ability to purchase the things that they desire and they want. And he says, no, establish your work first. Get your fields ready. Have everything prepared so that you can work and you can provide the income that you need for your family. Then if God blesses you with an abundance... Then if you want to build a bigger house, build a bigger house. Then if you want to provide more comforts and more luxuries for your family, then buy more comforts and luxuries for your family. But don't do it the opposite way. Don't go out and get all these things and assume that I'll be able to pay for it because I'm going to get a really good job. Well, it doesn't always happen that way, right? It doesn't always happen uh, that way at all. There are people who think that they're going to have a really good job and then they go and they uh, buy new cars and they buy this or they buy that all on debt and maybe they do have a good job and then they lose it. And now how are they going to pay for all these things? They can't and then they go bankrupt because they overextend themselves. So he's teaching us here principles for how we should live faithfully and use our money in a proper way, right? Not being anxious and greedy and covetous to desire all these things without the means to pay for them. But instead, work hard, be diligent, be faithful, and then if God gives you the blessing and you desire some of these things, then go and get the things that you desire in the fear of the Lord. Luke 14, we reference this. uh, Luke 14, verse 28. 28. Here, Jesus is applying this same principle to the issue of discipleship, following him. But it's the same concept that he's dealing with here. 14.28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. They mock and ridicule him because he cannot complete what he started. Verse 28, do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. When it comes to our neighbors, we should desire to live at peace and harmony with our neighbors, right? That begins in the home, right? We want to live at peace in our home with our wife, with our children, and then with those outside of the home in society. And typically, you know, we're going to have people who are our neighbors, who live very close to us. We ought to desire to live at peace with those people and to do whatever we can to promote good, friendly relationships with our neighbors. Well, one of the ways to not produce good, friendly relationships with your neighbors is to go and be a witness against your neighbor without a cause. When these kinds of frivolous, trivial lawsuits and cases are brought up, if you go and testify against your neighbor, that's not going to endear you to him. It's only going to create more animosity and more hostility and more tension between you and your neighbor. And then, if this is happening, he's going to want to repay evil for evil. He's going to want to treat you in this way. So if your cow gets out and wanders over into his field... Well, if he was on friendly terms with you, he may go get that cow and bring it back to you. But now he might just let it go. Maybe he'll shoot it and go eat it himself, right? It's on his property now. He's going to do things to you that are not beneficial and do not promote your welfare. So we should not go to war 
and testify and have odds against our neighbor without a cause. Now, if there is a legitimate cause, then that's a different story. Then we need to speak truthfully, and then that comes to a matter of not showing partiality. We shouldn't show partiality to the man because he's our neighbor if he's a murderer. right? If he's a thief, and I see that he has stolen goods, and I am asked to testify about, and I'm a witness to what he did, then I need to stand up in court and testify, yes, this is indeed what this man has done. This is his character. And then the chips have to fall where they lie, and he has to get the punishment he deserves. But we should not be a witness against them for frivolous, trivial matters, and without a cause, when people are bringing uh, false testimony against them and deceive with their lips. And don't say, I'll do it to him because he did it to me. I'll render to the man according to his work. Maybe your neighbor's a big fat jerk and he's been a real jerk towards you and he's made your life miserable. And now you've got the opportunity to give him a little taste of his own medicine. Should we do that? No, we should not do that. We should love our enemy, do good to those who persecute us. He may have done evil to me, but I should not repay his evil with evil. Instead, repay evil with good. This is the way that we should be and I shouldn't render to him according to his work. Because if I do that to him, then maybe God will do that to me. Do we want God treating us based upon strict justice? Do we want God giving us according to our work? No, because we sin against him in far greater ways. Instead, we should be merciful and compassionate toward our neighbor. Verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I reflected upon it, I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your want like, a armed, like an armed man. Here, he's passing by the field of a sluggard, the vineyard of a man lacking sense. Now notice there first, he is being truthful and honest about this man and what is true of him. This is not him forming an unjust opinion of him. It's not him being judgmental of him. Everything about this man's property testifies that this man is a sluggard and this is a man who is lacking sense because of the condition of his fields, of his property, of all of these things. Now, if he was a hardworking man, then his fields and his vineyards would not be overgrown with weeds, with thorns, and with thistles. So he's passing by and he's seeing these things. It's completely overgrown with thistles. It's covered with nettles. The stone wall is broken down. There's no wall to protect it from animals coming in. There's thorns and thistles growing all throughout it. How is this man going to provide a livelihood for himself and for his family with a field in such horrible conditions? And does this happen overnight that a field comes into such disrepair? Now, weeds do grow pretty quickly, in Oklahoma especially. However, typically when a field comes into this condition, it's over the course of time, over years of neglect and of laziness and of being a big, lazy sluggard. Then verse 32, when I saw it, I reflected on it. I looked and received instruction. Here, notice that the prophet, everywhere he goes, he's reflecting, he's thinking, Right, his mind is thinking about the things of God. He's making application to his own life. He's trying to learn and grow. So he's not going through life aimlessly, pointlessly. His mind isn't in the clouds just daydreaming about this and that. As he goes through life, whatever he is experiencing, whatever he's seeing, he's trying to learn from these things and make application to his own life so that he will walk in the fear of God and he'll do those things pleasing to God. So when he looks and sees the disrepair of this man's field, then he reflects upon it and he is able to grow in wisdom. He gains instruction. It gives him safety guidelines by which he's going to live. And what is it that he learns by observing the field of this sluggard? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And then poverty will come as a robber and your want like a wanted man. A little sleep, a little slumber, little folding of the hands to rest. Now here, it's saying this in a facetious way, right? Because typically the problem is not a little sleep. We do need a little bit of sleep. The problem with the sluggard is a lot of sleep. 
a lot of sleep, a lot of slumber, a lot of rest, a lot of leisure. This is what they want to spend their days doing. They spend their days in idleness instead of working hard, instead of being diligent. They sleep too much, right? And this is, again, a difficulty that many people have, especially for me. It was harder when I was young. As I've gotten older, it's more difficult for me to sleep. I wake up earlier, and it, it's not a problem. When I was young, man, I could sleep all day long. You know, it was very, very easy to do. Well, if that's what a person spends his days doing, sleeping, resting, leisure, having fun, then how is he ever going to work? How is he ever going to provide for his family? How is he going to go and take care of his field and do whatever's necessary? How is he going to get the skills that are needed to go out and get a good job so that he can have a wife and have children and provide for those that have been entrusted to him? He's never going to be able to do those things if all he cares about is sleep and rest and leisure and relaxation. What happens to those who are given to this? To this, uh, they, they cannot control their sleep and rest in moderation but they are excessive in their desire for these things. Poverty and want will come upon you like a robber and, a want and an armed man. They will come upon you. Does anyone want a robber coming into their house, stealing their goods? Does anyone want an armed man to assault them on the way? No, they don't want that. What man wants to be poor? What man wants to be in want who has no idea how he's going to get his next meal? Typically, this is not common for people to want to live in this way. And yet, if a person is a sluggard, this is exactly what's going to happen to them, and there's nothing that they can do about it. Because what it takes for them to overcome this is to get off their lazy rear and go to work, right? Get a job and go to work and provide for their family. But that's what they're unwilling to do. So the, the, the means given by God to rectify the poverty and want that they're facing, they're unwilling to do it. And so it will come upon them most assuredly. Therefore, we should not be like that. Christians should be hardworking people. We should be the hardest workers, the most diligent in our schooling, in our training, in our workplace. We should work harder than anyone else. And this was why back with the Puritans, they called it the Puritan work ethic, because the Puritans worked as if they were working for the Lord and not for men. And they saw work as an avenue and a means to bring glory and honor to God. And that's the way that they pursued it. They worked hard and they were diligent. And this is the way that we should be as well. That is the a characteristic of a, righteous, of a righteous man, of a man of faith. He wants to be hardworking, not only in, our, in this world, but we ought to also do this in terms of spiritual things. We should be hardworking in terms of seeking righteousness, seeking truth, our understanding of the Word of God, memorizing Scripture. These things don't come easily and naturally. It takes hard work. But if we're lazy in those disciplines, then we're never going to achieve the measure of godliness and maturity that, that we need to be faithful to the Lord. So we have to overcome our... wake, Shake off the sluggishness, and we have to press on and be diligent and work hard for the Lord. So then, let us pursue such things. Well, let's pray, and then we will be dismissed. And one uh, bit of good news that was shared with us yesterday, uh, and that is concerning Josh and Gayatri. Uh, Gayatri is pregnant, and she's 18 weeks along. And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for, for that, because they've had a lot of trouble conceiving. And then they did have a conception, uh, and the baby was lost uh, several months ago, and it was a very difficult time for them. But now uh, that everything is going well. And so we want to pray for them just for God's blessing to be upon them um, and rejoice with them and, and praise the Lord for, for giving to them. Uh, all of this comes from above. Conception is from the Lord. He's the one who gives to us our children. He can withhold and he can give as he sees fit. And now he is seen uh, pleased to give the child. So praise the Lord for that. So let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time together today. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, so much for all of the blessings that you have bestowed upon us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that this great salvation that we have received, Lord, that it would manifest itself, Lord, in the way that we live. Lord, knowing that, Lord, even our Christian lives, Lord, these things are in no way adding to our approval before you. They do not add or finish or complete the work of Christ. Lord, we know that everything necessary 
for our ultimate salvation has been graciously provided for us by him. But Lord, we know that a part of this salvation that Christ has purchased for us is that he has given to us his spirit and his spirit is producing within us good fruit. Uh, He is the one that is at work within us. And Lord, even the good that we are producing, we recognize and see, Lord, that none of it has originated with us, but that all of it comes from you. Lord, you have given to us everything. So we confess that all that we have, Lord, whatever good there is in us, Lord, whatever measure of faith we have, whatever good fruit that we have produced, Lord, whatever righteousness that we have attained to, every single bit of it, Lord, has come down from you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that you might continue this great work within us. Lord, just as we have read today, Lord, these attributes and characteristics, the traits of a godly man, Lord, we pray that these things would be true of us. Lord, that we, that we would fear the proper authorities that you've placed in our life. Lord, that we would love our neighbor. Lord, that we would not rejoice in the calamity of, of our enemies. Lord, that we would be diligent to work hard. Uh, Lord, in our calling and that you would be the one who would provide for us all things. So, Lord, help us to walk in this way, to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. Father, we also are very, Lord, grateful today for the good news that we received yesterday from uh, the Hayden family. Lord, that you have granted to them uh, the, the child that they have so long desired. Father, we thank you that uh, their grief from the loss of pregnancy earlier or last year, Lord, that it has been replaced with this joy and that Gayatri has already reached 18 weeks and that everything is going well and she is healthy and the baby is healthy. And Father, we just pray that, Lord, we pray that it would continue to to go that way. Lord, we pray that there would be no complications and that she would arrive at at full term and that there would be a a very healthy delivery and that you grant to them Lord, this child, uh, under their care. Lord, we pray for them as parents. Lord, we pray that they might raise this child in the fear of you. Lord, that they would be faithful and diligent to instruct and to teach. And Lord, to to raise uh, the child, Lord, in the gospel and the knowledge of those things. Lord, we pray even now for salvation. Lord, knowing that You are the one who must grant it. Lord, you must change the heart. Lord, we know that all children that are brought into this world, Lord, that they all come in with a nature of sin because of of Adam's sin. And Lord, only you can overcome that. Only you can regenerate. Only you can give new life. Father, we ask and we, we beg of you. We plead, Lord, that you might be so gracious to this child. Lord, that in due time you would call the child to yourself, that you would regenerate the dead heart, that you would replace it with a heart of flesh, that you would write your law upon that heart, and that, Lord, that this child might cry out to you, that the child would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, and that you might use him or her for your own glory, Lord, living their life for you. So, Father, please, we ask that you would be favorable and gracious uh, in this way. And, Lord, we pray again for the Haydens, and we just thank you, Father, for this blessing that you have bestowed upon them. And, Lord, we pray that it might be the first of many children that you bless them with. So, Lord, be with them, and we we pray for, again, uh, just their health and their safety throughout this process. And, Lord, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, be with us as we go from here today. Give us safety as we travel home. Lord, may we walk in your ways this week, and we ask that you bring us together again on Wednesday. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.